Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Today on The Grave Talks, the haunted St. Albans Sanatorium. There's never any guarantee that you're going to find anything on a ghost hunt. Investigators often scoff at televised ghost shows and their enormous amounts of evidence that conveniently is just found just in time for the cameras. If you ever decide to enter the haunted St. Albans Sanatorium, seeking to find the proof that you're looking for, it may just be your lucky day. Originally constructed as a boys' school during a time when hazing which is part of life and academics. St. Albans Sanatorium saw its first years brimming with adolescent energy and poor choices. After falling on hard times and better education options in nearby cities, the school closed its doors. The building was then resurrected into a sanatorium in 1916. At its time, the medicine and procedures practiced were thought to be very advanced for the day. In the perspective prism of history, though, they looked more like cruel and inhumane ways of treating the mentally ill. Today on The Grave Talks, we talk with paranormal investigator Jake Fife about the history of and his experiences at the haunted St. Elbin's Sanatorium. Well, the building was built in 1892 by a man by the name of George Miles. And he wanted this building that could create a group of gentlemen that would be perfect for uh, 20th century business. He wanted to create the next generation of leaders. And where he was at the time, he didn't feel like his vision was being met. And so he went to Radford, and which at the time was still called Central Depot. And he found this little land up on a ridge. And he thought, you know, it'd be perfect. It's away from the town. Uh, they won't be distracted by, you know, getting into hijinks or getting into typical things that teenage guys typically do uh, when they're away from home. And so he started construction on the building and he collected some of the finest professors and teachers on the East Coast that he knew. And this was 
when it came to that area, there weren't many places like this, aside from a college. Now, this was not a college, it was a prep school. But what's interesting is, in a lot of records, it's listed as being a high school technically designated. But during their athletic competitions, they would go up against high school and college um, schools. So that's something that's kind of cool. And with him, he took somewhat of a militaristic mindset to, you will do this. This is the discipline, but it wasn't a military school. So it was it was kind of strange how he had it set up. Very different, but it was very ahead of its time. Um, he had many different sports. Really, any sport an athlete could want to play, he had them there because he wanted to create the perfect balance of strong mind, strong physical body, and of course, he wanted classic Southern gentlemen. So, I guess in his mind, he had this vision of what will the perfect gentleman of the 20th century, 20, 30 years from now, look like. And that's what he tried to create with this building. But over time, it started to get a reputation as a very rough school. This wasn't some place where, you know, it was a nourishing environment. He kind of let the students rule themselves in a sense to where if there was a squabble, if there was a feud, anything like that, he just let them deal with it amongst themselves because he figured if they learn how to solve their problems amongst themselves, they'll be better men in the long run. But of course, that didn't happen. Um, there are a lot of stories that come out of there saying that there's multiple suicides, maybe even some accidental killings. Um, I have found no records to prove this, but that's a story that I've heard but the fact that it did have a very rough reputation, that is true. That is documented. Um, and something he would do, him and his wife, they would go to different cities, different towns, all over the East Coast, mainly the South. And he would recruit the best athletes, the best minds. And he just, he dove completely headfirst into this school. He gave everything into it. And eventually he figured out you know, in order to operate what I want to operate, we need more funds. And they weren't getting the funds that he liked. Now, the school was very profitable. A lot of the high astute families of the region, they sent their kids there. And it was considered a big honor and a huge deal if your son went to this school. And at that time, it was known as uh, St. Albans Lutheran Boys School. Um, and so him and his wife, they would go to different towns and recruit these people to send them there. And after a while, he figured out that athletics was starting to catch on huge in Virginia at that time, mainly baseball and football. In fact, in, I believe it was 1895 or 1896, they had this pitcher for their baseball team that was known as the best baseball pitcher in on the East Coast of America, which was a huge deal. There's a few I've read newspaper articles written about him. Um, but he started pushing athletics a little bit more. And what they did was that created a bit more of a hostile environment because there were people that, you know, they weren't as intelligent as some of the higher class uh, kids that were being sent there. But they were, in a way, being given run of the school because, you know, they were making the money. And as long as they were making the money, they could kind of do what they wanted. And so that's when you had stories of hazings come into play. Um, some people supposedly committed suicide. There was actually, this is in a yearbook. You can go online and read this. It's from 1894, 1895. 
uh, there's a quote from one of the staff members that said to this certain kid, I can't remember his name, he didn't return to school for the second semester, much to the dismay of his classmates, because he featured predominantly as the football of their local game. So it was a very rough environment. But at the time, I guess he saw the writing on the wall that, you know, there's other schools that have somewhat taken his model and have improved upon it. And so some of the higher class people that were paying, you know, the larger tuitions, they started pulling their kids out. And around 1903, he's starting to look at other towns to move to. He doesn't really want to be in Radford anymore. And so around 1910-1911, he decides to go ahead and close the school. And right after that, uh, he kind of disappears from record. I have not found anything about, you know, what he ended up doing. I did see one mention that he might have gone to Nashville. But between 1892 and 1911, there really wasn't anything in the early 1890s around where the school is, say, where the sanatorium is. It was a road, and that was kind of about it. There might have been a house or two every so often. But once the school was built, it really started developing that area. And that was very, very key for not just the town's economy, but also the county's economy. Because if you go by there now, that's a very busy road with a lot of businesses. And that was started pretty much because the school was put there. And then, of course, you had... um, the sanatorium, which came in 1913. Actually, that was started by George Miles. I've got the names mixed up. Um, but he was a director of another local sanatorium, and he had a different vision for treating people that were, I guess, mentally handicapped. He didn't really like the idea of having people, you know, strapped with these crazy machines that would shoot electricity into them or anything like anything that he saw as inhumane. He thought that being outside, doing something, working your mind slowly back to where, you know, it might be at a level that maybe be normal by their standards, that's what he wanted to create. And he designed this huge facility that was going to be, I believe it's a Southwest, uh, Southwestern Mental Institution. And what he wanted was this big facility that had gardens, tennis courts, and pools around. And his idea was this will not be worked by just staff members, but mainly by the patients themselves. We will give them, you know, little jobs. They will earn an allowance. Um, While they're getting treatments on the side, we have them, you know, doing kind of typical work that a worker of the time would do. And his idea was, you know, slowly over time, their mind might go back to a normal level or how they deemed was normal. But the problem was when he pitched this idea to the board of supervisors, it cost a little too much money than they were willing to spend. And so they basically shot his idea down. And there was even one mention that said, you know, if their mind is broken already, why should we even try to fix it if it's going to cost us this much money? And so he got mad. He got kicked off. And he ended up resigning. And he still wanted to set up his own dream facility. But he couldn't find a place. And so him and his wife, they were traveling, looking for really anywhere, any vacant property to start building his dream. 
and then he stumbled into Radford. And when he stumbled into Radford, it was originally going to be, you know, just a quick one-off trip before they got back on the road. But he saw the abandoned building up on the ridge. And for some reason, it just, it caught his eye. And he couldn't take his eyes off of it. He couldn't take his mind off of it. So he took all their remaining funds that they had in their names, and he bought the building and started working on it, trying to restore it to where, you know, he could house patients. And so he created this little board of directors, and they raised actually a decent amount of money uh, for, you know, kind of just being thrown together on the fly, not really anyone knowing what exactly they were going to do. And so when he first opened it in 1915, it only had less than 30 patients when it first opened. And the numbers really didn't climb the first few years. And so what he ended up doing was it was half sanatorium and half hospital. And one of the main things that he also noticed was in the local area, the clinic wasn't the world's greatest. And the closest hospital was about 20 some minutes away in Christiansburg and Blacksburg. So he figured, you know, for the time being, this will bring in some money and it will help people, uh, you know, spread the word of mouth around the state. And it worked a little bit, not to the point where he wanted it to work. But then something happened. There was a local arsenal that was built. And once the arsenal was built, he started getting more patients. Now, the reason for this was when you're working in an arsenal, and these people, they worked really long shifts. And I cannot remember the name of the chemical, but there is a chemical that when you are exposed to it for long periods of time, it messes with your mind. And it kind of makes you go a little crazy. And so, you know, people would start acting weird, and they would send them to Dr. Miles up at the sanatorium. And after that happened... Their numbers tripled out of nowhere. The problem with that was they didn't have enough nurses, enough staff members to take care of all these. And, of course, George Miles and his wife, they were almost bankrupt to the point to where in order to get food sometimes for their family, they had to take food from the gardens and from the cows and chickens that the patients at the sanatorium next door were raising, and they would sell them at local markets. That was how tight it was. But him and his wife, they never wavered in their belief of what they were doing. And slowly but surely, it started becoming a straight-up sanatorium. Um, Now, he ended up dying in the 1920s, and after he died, his wife kept a watch on it, but... It was kind of more of just, you know, Mrs. Miles. That was kind of how she didn't have full control of really anything. And this new board came in, and they started coming up with new ideas. Now, at that time, the eugenics movement was starting to pick up steam in Virginia. And some early forms of eugenics was used at St. Albans. But when the Stanton, the Dijarnet structure, was built, that kind of took over... Uh, most of their eugenics stuff. And Sanat- uh, St. Albans Sanatorium pretty much just became a sanatorium that would experiment with some of the latest ideas and theories about, you know, how to care for the mentally weak. 
And that's when you had the more experimentation, uh, more experimental, messed up stuff like hydrotherapy, uh, some advanced forms of electroshock. But they didn't hire more doctors and more nurses. So you would have a few thousand patients, but you may only have between 50 to 100 people on staff, which it sounds like a lot, but the way they did it to try and save money, it didn't work out. And so you had a lot of people that were neglected. They didn't have their uh, needs met. They weren't tended to when they needed to be tended to because there was some other experiment that needed more staff on standby. And so you had a lot of people that died these really tragic and sad deaths simply because, you know, the sanatorium was somewhat viewed by the people as it's a business that kind of sort of helps people. So it took them until the 1960s to actually be accredited by the state of Virginia. Once they were accredited by the state of Virginia, they opened up two more facilities, one in Christiansburg, which I believe still runs today. And there was one in Beckley, West Virginia. Now what would happen is they would have people go to these facilities and they would do a first analysis. Okay, what level are these people at in terms of, you know, for lack of a better word, mental, uh, mentally ill? And if they were deemed too severe, they would send them to the Radford facility. And if they weren't, they'd be treated there, and then that was it. But they started coming up with this new structure of handling patients. Um, the Dijarnet facility in Stanton, that was kind of seen as where the worst of the worst cases go, the most violent, the kind of most far gone, because there was, there was a lot of shady stuff going on at the Stanton facility, which, you know, I could easily talk for an hour about that. But what they would do is they would siphon off different patients to different facilities. Like this one patient started here at this facility they showed these signs when entered, but after a while, their uh, condition has gotten better or worse, so we are transferring them to X facility. And one of the main facilities for the Stanton uh, Sanatorium was St. Albans. And so a lot of the people who were not too severe, and severe as in their mind just, there's not much to be done, or in terms of violence, uh, they would send about the mid-tier people down to St. Albans, because it was away from the town. It was in an area that was starting to develop, but if something went wrong and people got out, they wouldn't really be able to hurt too many people. And that's when you started having a lot of deaths, suicides at the sanatorium. And that's actually why the birdcage was built uh, close to where the old classrooms were at St. Albans. And what they would do is they would send the toughest of the tough patients there, the what we may call serial killers now, they would be sent to the birdcage and basically locked up there for recreation time. And I've talked to a few people who have heard stories from people who experienced this that would be driving by or they'd be walking by and they could see 10 to 15 patients pounding on the cages until their hands were bloodied and bruised and screaming and screeching. And sometimes some people swear you could hear the screaming from across the river in town. And that was an area that it saw a few deaths. And it just, between the 60s until the 90s when it was finally sold, it didn't get too much better until, of course, the 70s 
uh, mid-70s when the eugenics movement was pretty much, they reversed everything. They said, we're sorry, this is insanely messed up. We don't know why we did this. Um, but a lot of the eugenics stuff, it didn't really go away. It was on paper went away. But a lot of the experiments were kind of put underground. Actually, almost literally, they would build uh, basement levels, underground levels, and they would do the, the experiments that they were doing before. They just didn't have um, the quote-unquote sanctions of the state anymore. But that didn't mean that they could do something off the books because, you know, it's off the books. No one's going to ask. And most of the time, the patients wouldn't survive. So it wasn't like the patients could say anything. And at St. Albans Sanatorium, some of these experiments did take place. Now, once again, a lot of the records of St. Albans, they're kind of lost slash hidden. Uh, so when I'm talking about all this stuff, I go by what I've heard and by the records I have seen. Mm -hmm. So in terms of what exactly they used to do to patients, the experiments and death tolls, things like that, we don't really know for 100% certainty. But in the 1990s, the Carillion Health uh, System bought St. Albans Sanatorium, and they were originally going to turn it into kind of a learning facility for Radford College. But they ended up building another structure next to St. Albans, and they made that the Radford College, pretty much learning center. And the main St. Albans building, it was abandoned and left to rot. And that was kind of it until about the late 90s when it said that a local satanic group took over the building and started doing a bunch of really messed up summoning rituals. Um, a lot of their, I guess, graffiti, a lot of their symbols, uh, what they were called doorways to hell, literally, is what they were trying to do. They were trying to set up certain places in St. Albans, um, the Alcoholics Ward, the, let's see, the Dragon's Room, which was the recreation room for the patients there, and the boy, uh, the bowling alley. Those were the main areas where they set up these doorways, where they were trying to summon the devil himself and Satan's legion. And I want to and, talk about that in, in greater detail. I want to get to the 90s, and I want to talk about what happened with the group and, and what sort of bad energy may have been entered into the building but before we go too far into the 90s let's take a step back into the area where you're talking about the doctors um and them doing those experiments uh after the eugenics were essentially decommissioned and in off the books but still somewhat practiced uh in 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 secret why were the doctors still wanting to practice this this type of of, of medicine uh if, if it had already been kind of debunked, for lack of a better term, did they still believe in it? Did they still think that there was some purpose to it? And, and what was their reasoning for, for continuing on that path? I think they still believed in it. I mean, you had a lot of these doctors that had been there 20 plus years, mm -hmm. and you had 20 plus years of studying something, devoting your life to learning this certain way, this certain craft. Mm -hmm. And over time, the, you have to think that hundreds and maybe even thousands of patients that they worked on, sometimes, you know, as crazy as it may sound, it would work. It would work. It would help the people get better. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for every hundred people that would die during these experiments, they would only remember and reference the one that was 
fix that was healed. Mm -hmm. And I believe that's mainly why they kept doing the experiments. They still had hope that it worked. And then, of course, you had some more people who were pretty sick and twisted people, and they just wanted to see what would happen. Because in their mind, what I think was going through their mind was, how will we know what would happen if you do this without trying this? Sure, it may sound sadistic and cruel, and it is sadistic and cruel, but now we know what would happen if you tried this so that, you know, years from now they know not to do this. I think it was those two ideas that kind of kept the eugenics movement alive for some of these doctors. You had also mentioned that they they had placed the sanatorium in this certain area where the thought process was if they escape they're not going to get very far it's you know it's not necessarily by a lot of things at that point in time uh how often did they have escapees how often did they have to deal with that to my knowledge i have not read of any escapees actually making it out um the sanatorium it changed in the way it did things from when it was opened in 1915, technically was when it was opened, um, up until about the 1930s, which is basically when Dr. King had it under his control, so he still had his vision going. The patients, they weren't really restricted in the sense that, you know, they're only within the building. They were watched very closely, but they were allowed to go outside, uh, work the gardens. They had a working farm. They had uh, the baseball field was still up. They had a few athletics for them to do. And it was, and during that time, there wasn't, I guess, that sense of you are stuck here. You are not allowed to leave, which to the human mind would kind of make someone want to break out, want to leave. And Dr. King, he tried to make the patients as comfortable as he could. And of course, he couldn't really do much because, you know, they had limited funds. But he did everything he could to make the patients feel calm and comfortable there. And so I don't think for the patients there, there was as much of a sense of wanting to escape as there was, you know, starting in the 1940s when the new people took over and they started cutting a lot of the programs that he had set up, like the gardens, the farm, the athletics, and pretty much kept the patients trapped inside that building. And I think that's where most of the um, animosity and the desire to escape came from. But to my knowledge, there wasn't really any escape attempts. Uh, maybe people accidentally got outside before they were rushed, but that's about all I know. Okay. So let's go now over to the 90s, where you said there was a satanic group that got in there and, and started performing rituals, almost trying to create a portal to hell. What was going on at, at that time? What was the, the public knowledge of this, and what were some of the things that were found out about that group? Well, the public knowledge was the building is vacant. There's nothing going on there. It's just a creepy building that's sitting there. That was it. That was all the public knew. Because there are many theories about why the group was able to be so hidden in somewhat plain sight. Um, it is weird how a group, you know, supposedly they had people there all the time. Um, I don't know how frequently they met there, but from some of the people I've talked to, some of the things I've heard, now mind you, these are stories I've heard, nothing concrete facts, 
but there was always that their presence there. Um, and so they were kind of able to operate mainly under the cover of night. Um, and also the building was somewhat of the local boogeyman story. You had this creepy building up on the hill that used to be an old sanatorium where crazy evil stuff used to happen and many people died violently. And supposedly if you went there, you never came back. It was that kind of story that pretty much every small town has. It has its own boogie monster. And I guess for Radford, it was a building, was its boogeyman. And so a lot of people, they steered clear of it. Now, the facility right next to St. Albans, um, which was a Radford College learning facility, it was still in use. Uh, there were people going to classes there, helping patients. And for me, the fact that you had students there, doctors, patients, and even security there, literally within 50 yards of the St. Albans main building, and they never really noticed anything. In my personal opinion, I always found that a little suspicious, a little strange, that no one saw anything or heard anything. Um, you know, that area after uh, the Gina Renee Hall murder incident close by, that building, it always had that cursed feel to it. With uh, with a building like that, and and you know, almost gaining the reputation of kind of the local haunted place, and obviously with a very dark uh, dark history behind it, what then happens in in history after that? Uh, once kind of some of the satanic stuff dies down, what 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 is the incarnation of the building, if anything, uh, moving out of the '90s into the early 2000s? Well, the building completely sat vacant. Uh, starting, I believe, 1994 is when it was formally abandoned. And it actually stayed abandoned up until, I believe, 2009, 2008, 2009. And that's when the people who currently own it now, uh, they got the building as a haunted attraction. And they opened it up as ghost tours and a place to host public investigation. So between roughly 1994 through 2008, the building was pretty much vacant. It was left a rot on its own. Nothing was going on there. What was the state of the building in about 2009 uh, once it was purchased for investigations, haunted attraction, if you will? Uh, I'm obviously assuming not great, rotting away, but uh, can you paint that picture for us of what it was like? Well, the building, and a lot of buildings I've noticed this with sanatoriums at the turn of the century, they were built to last. You could tell um, when they built a lot of these sanatoriums, they didn't think that they would just stand for 50 to 100 years. They were looking long, long term, longer than that. So they tried to build these buildings, you know, to stand the test of time as to where if they were to be left for a while, they wouldn't completely fall in on themselves. And so um, I don't know exactly what condition it is specifically in 2008, but I've talked to the owners a few times, and they said, you know, it had its typical abandoned building problems, uh, leaky pipes, some certain floors were caving in, problems like that. But aside from that, the building was in pretty good condition, good enough to where not any drastic renovations had to be carried out in order to let people in. Once they they took it over and, and began their operations with it even before we get to that point i want to ask uh 
other than than the the rumors and the stories that have been going around of the people that were in there uh, performing satanic rituals and such, what were the the what was the first that you're aware of uh, story or encounter of something paranormal going on within the building? How far back does that trace? Does it trace to when it was actually in operation with with some of the medical staff that was working there from the early 90s or earlier? Or does that more so come into play after the building becomes abandoned? I'll go you one further. The story of the building being haunted actually goes back to the 1890s. Okay. There were a few, there were a few stories that were told between classmates that, you know, at night they would see people walking and then disappear they would hear voices now these students going back to a boys school they stayed on campus so basically they were there 24 7 um, never leaving and so they were really well acquainted with the building there were many stories of shadow people uh, phantom voices mainly towards the turn of the century there were a lot of stories of people seeing you know classmates that aren't there anymore and different things like that and it slowly became you know almost like a school legend of oh don't go over here at night or the shadow boy will get you or you'll hear the moaning person going down the hall it started as that but there were claims of paranormal activity right from the get-go and as for why this is why the place had paranormal activity pretty much when it was just built I don't know. That's one of the mysteries I've always wanted to solve. Now, when it was a sanatorium, there aren't too many ghost stories aside from some of the doctors and former patients. They've come out here in the last few years saying that there would be times they would see shadow people. Uh, Objects would move. Objects would be thrown across rooms. Um, Different things like that. There's actually one story I've never been able to authenticate. Uh, But I was deep, deep in the web on Google search looking for records of the place, and I ran across this story of, I believe it, what did they call him? They called him the Shadow Boy. Mm -hmm. And what this was, and I believe it was 1963, 1964, there was this little boy, and his parents had died, and so he was sent to live with his aunt and uncle in Radford. Now, this boy, he was very young, maybe six or seven years old, and he missed his parents. He, I don't know exactly how they died, if he was with them, but obviously their death had a huge effect on him. And every once in a while, he would get into these violent fits of rage. And the thing that made these fits of rage different was when he would get angry, stuff would happen around the house. Objects would levitate. Uh, stuff would be thrown up against the wall. But it took a darker turn one day when he started, you know, in another fit. And his aunt went to go comfort the boy. And the shadow being about seven feet tall showed up and allegedly controlled her away from him. And, you know, obviously at that point they didn't know what, what more they could do for the boy. So they sent him to this uh the facility on the hill which is st Albans sanatorium where from what i've read he was kept in the male isolation chamber and there's one story that according to the site was told by some nurses who you know helped treated the boy and they said one night they were down there and he started giving like this demonic 
scream coming from his room. And when they went in there, there was a shadow being standing over the boy with dark red eyes. And they saw the boy start to levitate and then he would drop, start to levitate, then he would drop. And different things were happening. There were phantom sounds of, you know, they sound like pops, but, you know, nothing was popping. And a few nurses went in and this being looked at them and somehow got them all out of the room, about three or four nurses, and then shut the door and somehow locked it, even though the only way you could lock it was on the outside. And so they tried and tried to open this door. And then finally the boy stopped yelling, this demonic yell, and they went in and he started just twitching and just shaking uncontrollably. And they started hearing voices within the room, almost like they were in a cathedral with people talking all at once in this room, but there was no one there. Um, a part of the story is also there was this one staff member that would clean the areas at night, and for some reason, the boy didn't like him. And he, the staff member ended up dying. Now, what's interesting, there is a record I have found. This is something you can find on the Internet. From the 1960s, there was a staff member that did die. He actually fell out a window. And as for whether or not that's, you know, the death that they're referring to in the story, I don't know. But it is confirmed there was a staff member death around that time. So after about two weeks of the boy being at the facility and, you know, they couldn't control him pretty much. He was the most severe case out of everyone. He was in complete isolation 24-7, couldn't leave the room, couldn't see anyone, they ended up transferring him to the Stanton facility. And then he stayed a little while there, and then he ended up being transferred to a facility in West Virginia where it said the boy ended up dying about a year after everything started. Now, what's interesting is, you know, this is a pretty insane story. And there are a few volunteers I've talked to that have heard mentionings of this story but it's not something that has been proven to have actually happened. But what is also weird is there is a creature um, that's in the male isolation ward that does somewhat fit the description of this, I guess, incident. And there was actually an investigation that my dad and I, we did when we were at St. Albans a few years ago. And when I asked about the little boy, we received a spirit box response that said here when we asked, you know, if it was true. So as for whether or not it actually happened, we don't know. But it's it is a story of St. Albans. Various therapy treatments were employed here and thought to correct the behaviors of the mentally ill. Many of these treatments were on the verge of being proven ineffective. They included isolation rooms, cages, procedures involving water and more. Once the version of medicine that they practiced was deemed ineffective, some of the doctors took matters into their own hands, practicing without oversight or records on their own in the lower floor and sub-basement of the facility. Allegedly, human experiments were fair game and also likely very much a contributing factor to what would later be called the haunted St. Albans Sanatorium because of their suicide was very common at this treatment facility. Today, the deceased patients seem to still be confused and still roam the halls of St. Albans Sanatorium, searching for a way to get better. 
or to make the lives of those who visit hell. If you want to hear the full story of these treatment options, the torture, the torment that many living people went through, and why they may be back, and what they're doing to the living. Until next time, for the Grave Talks, I'm Tony Bruschi. Thanks for listening. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.
With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.